You're listening to Nostalgia Club, the podcast where we look back on our favorite childhood stories and revisit them as adults. At least one of us hasn't read or watched these series, so we also get a first-timer's opinion. Spoiler alert, we will be discussing storylines and future events beyond the first books and episodes, so proceed with caution. Whoa, hey, welcome back to Nostalgia Club. My name is Michael Keen. I am a podcast editor joined by two other podcast editors. Names are as... Victoria. And Gino. Wow, look at that. We're on our way to being able to do a normal intro. Maybe someday we'll figure (laughs) it out. Today we are talking about a book series that I read when I was in, no, I don't know, let's say somewhere late elementary school era. It's called The Bartimaeus Sequence. Specifically, we read the first book in The Bartimaeus Sequence, The Amulet of Samarkand. Those of you who are old enough may remember, I believe, its original book cover which is a really frightening-looking green gargoyle goblin thing holding up a green amulet sort of centered inside this golden brooch. So Uh, spooky. It's very spooky. So scary. The more recent cover just has the amulet on it. It's a little less scary for those of us who are are maybe put off by the goblin face like Gino was in his youth. They really don't make book covers like they used to. Yeah. A lot of them are prettier nowadays. Yeah. They put more into the They're all about the aesthetics now. Yeah. Yeah, For the TikTok. (laughs) For the TikTok? (laughs) (laughs) Is there... I'm... I'm not on TikTok. Is there like a whole series of TikToks just about book covers? Oh, it's... There's a whole community on TikTok called Book Talk. And it's just people who give suggestions about what books you should read and all that stuff. Huh. Yeah, sometimes if you go to Barnes & Noble, they'll have displays that are like, as seen on Book Talk, and it'll be a bunch of titles that are frequently recommended on TikTok. Huh. Yeah. I'm not even on TikTok, but I know all this random stuff. I guess if it's short-form content, there's going to be a lot of judging books by their covers then. Yeah. How far we have strayed from God. (laughs) 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 We never learned. I mean, as toxic as that community might inevitably lend itself to be i suppose any sort of community that promotes reading and physical books is good yeah well i actually really like it because i saved a lot of videos of like books that i eventually i eventually want to read but then i just have an endless saved collection of book videos Mm, understandable i have given up (laughs) <laughs> on ever reading a book again that is not for Nostalgia Club. Because <laughs> at least when I read a book for Nostalgia Club, it feels productive. Speaking of book covers, Gino, you said that you were scared by the book cover as a kid? Yeah, my mom owned this book, I assume in an attempt to make me read it. And she failed because the <laughs> cover was so scary, so off-putting to me as a child that I just did not want to open it. Also, the book was very large. And I had Percy Jackson. Why would I read anything but Percy Jackson? Understandable. (laughs) Yeah, this book, Jonathan Stroud, the author, I really love his prose, but boy, does he chew that scenery. He chews it like bubblegum. There's a lot of description in this book, a lot of lingering on moments, and I I do like it. It really helps set the scene, but it, I will say, it, um, you know what I've noticed? I will say is something I say a lot. (laughs) Yeah, and then I repeat it. (laughs) Like, very shortly after you. Slowly, we're forming a hive mind. But Gino, I have a question for you. Looking back in time, would you prefer to have read it when you were young, when your mom first wanted you to read this book? Or do you feel like you've gained something from having read it for the first time now? I think my perspective on the characters and the story 
would have been very different as a child. I think I would have missed a lot of the nuance.、Mm. The book, without getting too much into it, because I know we're going to go into a plot summary at some point, but the book is full of characters, most of whom, actually, I would say all but maybe two, are supremely unlikable.、Mm-hmm. They all have very <laughs> broad faults. They are selfish and manipulative. They enslave other beings for their own purposes. This is not a nice world, but the book does also go out of its way to show the reader how these characters got to this point, why they think like this, and how maybe in a different world they could think differently. So I would have missed that nuance as a kid because I would have just read it as protagonist good. I support them. Bad guys, bad. Oh, evil. <laughs> Black and white. But now, as, as an adult, I can see the nuance. And I do think it was. A little harder to get into it because of that. I found myself not really rooting for any of the characters、mm. up, to, up until a certain point. There is a point in the book where I did start to root for the characters, but it took a while to get there. And the only thing kept me going was the amazing world building. It's like an alternate universe, modern esque, but with fantasy elements. And the characters are very well written. It's a, it's a really great book. I really enjoyed it. Victoria, same question, because this was new to you as well.、Mm-hmm. I had never even heard of it. This book had me on the edge of my seat the entire time. <laughs> even though the main character, Nathaniel, has his faults, he is only 12 years old. And so I found myself kind of like rooting for him to succeed. I was like, maybe you shouldn't be making these decisions. They probably will turn out really bad for you. But at the same time, I was like, no, don't do that. You're going to get caught. Or like, I really cringed at the moment where like, he let his birth name slip. I really enjoyed it. And the world building was fascinating. I thought it was interesting how it was told through the lens of Bartimaeus. He's the principal narrator of the series. Even when it's quote unquote Nathaniel's chapter, it's told from a third person perspective, whereas Bartimaeus's chapters are in first person. So it's basically like him telling what happens to Nathaniel from like an outside perspective. So it was really interesting to get his take on. This whole world and how、yeah. he is a part of it. That is a very unique aspect of this book and the two books that follow it. There is one more that Jonathan Stroud wrote after this. It's like this a prequel, tri- right? Yeah, it's a prequel. It's, it's called The Ring of Solomon, I think.、Ooh. That's one of the, the key features of these books that allows it to explore its world while also exploring the arcs of its characters, two very different characters who sit on two very opposite sides of the system that this. Book conveys through its world building. The book opens up with a young 12 year old apprentice magician named Nathaniel summoning a spirit, a djinn, one of many different kinds of otherworldly entities, into the, our world, our physical world, specifically an attic, his attic room in London, Great Britain. We are in an alternate universe of the modern day, and in this alternate universe, Magic is a real thing, and not just any kind of magic, but magic that is specifically derived from interactions with living, conscious, sentient spirits from this parallel universe thing called the other place. And these spirits have their own hierarchy, their own way of doing things in this other place, this other world. They rank from individuals. 
of minor power like imps and foliots to middle-ranking things like Jin and genie. Bartimaeus, one of our point-of-view characters, is a genie. To higher-ranking, more powerful spirits like Afrits and, what, uh, how do you pronounce it, Marids? Marids? I don't know how to pronounce any of these words. Yeah, I'm gonna same. say I'm gonna say Marids, and so they all have different abilities, different strengths, different capacities for leveraging their magical essences into spells and powers. And Nathaniel is an apprentice to one of many magicians in this, you know, alternate universe London that regularly summon these entities from the other place and bind them to their will as slaves. And the book is very clear that this is a long entrenched way of societal power leveraging for humanity that goes back millennia since the dawn of time. And what this means is that you'll get these seeds of how this has changed history up to this alternate universe 2010. For example, Great Britain, we are told, is a full-on empire in the year 2010 and achieved its supremacy sometime way back in like the mid-1800s when it defeated the prior previous empire of, I guess, it was a Czech empire based around Prague. That's It's a very interesting thing. They sort of center these empires around their capital city. So mm. this one is London to a greater extent, Great Britain. In the past, it was Prague um, to a greater extent. The Czech, I guess it wouldn't have been a republic. The Czech um, Empire? The Czech and Empire. before that, Babylon and Cairo and... All these things. Ancient civilizations built on the backs of magical servants. And we don't get this in the first book, but we get little bits of information about how in this alternate universe 2010, there is still an America and Great Britain goes to war with America and it's relentless expansionism. But there is also still Byzantium, like the ancient Byzantines are still a relevant power just by some weird timey-wimey wonkiness over the fact that the way people leverage power in this setting is not through boots on the ground and flesh and blood and steel, but through <laughs> entrenched systems of learning archaic practices to summon and bind extremely powerful magic entities to their control. And when Nathaniel, our young apprentice, summons Bartimaeus into his attic, he assigns him a very troublesome task of retrieving an ancient magical artifact called the Amulet of Samarkand from another magician called Simon Lovelace, a rather young magician, still an adult, but one who is scheming, desperate for power. In fact, scheming to overthrow the current British prime minister and place himself and his allies in the prime minister's place. And of course, the amulet is part of Lovelace's plan, but Nathaniel doesn't know this. Nathaniel is just upset because Simon Lovelace embarrassed him at yeah. a dinner party that his mentor was throwing. Gave him a magical spanking. Yeah. So it yeah. were. <laughs> Give him a magical spanking in front of a teacher that it's implied Nathaniel had like a, a, a crush on in a way. Yeah. Which is interesting. After that, his mentor, Arthur Underwood, he fires Nathaniel's favorite teacher, basically, after this. And Mr. Underwood is extremely embarrassed and upset. And so Nathaniel, he's just like a little ball of rage <laughs> and resentment. It's also because Mr. Underwood greatly underestimates Nathaniel. He didn't even want an apprentice in the first place, but every magician has to take on an apprentice at some point. And so Nathaniel was who he got. 
Mr. Underwood is not that great of a magician, so he doesn't see the potential in Nathaniel. And so Nathaniel, he's forced to progress much slower than he would like. Nathaniel spends all his time reading Mr. Underwood's books that he's not supposed to be reading and sneaking into places to learn new spells and whatnot. Mr. Underwood doesn't know any of it until later on. They do a really good job, like you said, of setting up the backstory of Nathaniel's character and showing why he takes such drastic measures to get back at Simon Lovelace. The way he writes this part of the book is really, really great because we get dropped right in into the action. Bartimaeus is summoned. Bartimaeus is sent to go get the amulet. We get demon on demon. Are they demons? That's another interesting thing I like. Essentially, they're spirits. They're mm. creatures made of, of some essence from an alternate dimension. But the way that human society has interacted with these creatures, understanding, of course, that these spirits are hostile to humanity to a certain extent. Yeah. And eagerly, thanks to, in part, I'm sure, millennia of persecution and slavery, at any opportunity, these spirits will turn on their masters and destroy them so they can be released back to their home, which is why they have all this stuff where a magician will sit in a pentacle and then summon another spirit into a pentacle from which the spirit cannot leave if they've done their job right, Uh, Mm because sometimes they don't and it goes wrong, and then bind them to their will. And so it's this antagonistic relationship. But as a result, that antagonism breeds uh, prejudice among humans towards these spirits. And that's why they call them demons, because it's it's a bit of a psyop. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And there's even a moment where Nathaniel calls Bartimaeus a demon and Bartimaeus is like, hey, just so you know, I really don't like to be called a demon. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So we get dropped right in. We get spirit shenanigans. We get to see all their powers at play. We get this whole heist thing. And as a reader, I'm thinking, what's going on? Why? Why, why is any of this happening? Who are these people? <laughs> and then only then do we get the backstory of Nathaniel being abandoned by his parents and adopted by this very grumpy, not very skilled magician, Mr. Underwood. We get his whole backstory. We understand why Nathaniel is this little tiny ball of rage. And then (laughs) we get into the main plot of the fallout of Bartimaeus stealing the amulet, which is really interesting. And again, I didn't really connect with any characters until we learned Nathaniel's backstory. And we learned that his actions are justified in the way that he has had a horrible life Mm -hmm. and he is in every right to lash out. But he has still been raised and stuck in this mindset of furthering his own power and moving within the government to achieve a spot within this society. He doesn't want to break things down and build them back up anew. He wants to keep things the way they are. He just doesn't like where he is in the ladder. Mm -hmm. And he wants to move up the ladder. And if the best way he can do that is by humiliating his enemies, then ah, why not? (laughs) Bartimaeus, do things! (laughs) Ah! I'm so angry. It's interesting to see the difference between 2010 sort of young adult media. And I think even then this book is different from a lot of other books you get of like magical realism Mm -hmm. or like urban fantasy. Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson. (laughs) Speaking of Percy Jackson, are you guys excited for the new Disney Plus adaptation? So excited. I just hope it's better than the movie adaptation. Uh, The movie uh, adaptation. Why is it so hard to make a good adaptation? I sure don't know. But you know who does know? Adapter Die. Who's that? Well, Adapter Die, they're a podcast about adaptations. Books turn into movies, movies turn into plays, plays turn into comics. Not sure that's ever happened, but I'm sure it I'm sure it will now that I've said it. What about comics turned into plays? Yes. Well, I'm sure if it turns into something, Pippa and KJ covered just about all of it. 
These two literary nerds dive deep into their favorite adaptational successes, failures, and head-scratchers, and piece together the evolution from source material to adaptation. Their podcast asks the seminal question, did it adapt or did it die? They also create a lot of bonus content on their Patreon. They do Patreon special episodes and holiday special episodes and a lot of other special episodes. My personal favorite is the episode where they talk about Little Women because I really loved that book as a kid. My personal favorite episode is the one where they talk about the series of unfortunate events. Ooh, I love that book series. Yeah, I've only ever played the video game and they mentioned that, which is, which is relevant to me and, and I like that. Check out Adapt or Die on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow them at adapterdie underscore pod on Instagram and Twitter. Do it. Or else. You never really see a protagonist like this who is so distinctly on the side of oppression and selfishness. And again, like you said, Gino, is pretty unlikable. When you learn his backstory, you understand him more. And that's always what you want. Even if your character isn't like in the right, you want to understand them. And so in a way, you can still be like rooting for them, at least over someone else. It's very interesting looking at all of the media that came out, books and movies and otherwise adaptations included, from the time that this book was published, which was prior to 2010. It must have been, actually, even though the setting is 2010 London. Or is it like 2002 London? Whatever. It's quote-unquote modern-day London. There's laptops. There's cars. Yes. That was another thing, because when I read these, I was very young. And like you said, the likelihood of not picking up on the nuance and the commentary, that was something that didn't happen for me when I was young. I could understand, of course, that this is, you know, oh, this is wrong. These magicians summoning these, these genie and everything. But I didn't quite pick up on all of the forces at work in the world and how they influence Nathaniel and just like the ways in which it naturally shows to you how people, like you said, end up the way that they do within this system. Yeah. How it molds them. This book presents many opportunities that another story probably would have led Nathaniel down the road of Freedom Fighter or Righteous Crusader. Yeah. He does encounter a resistance. There's some common people who are non-magicians that he encounters, and they've been stealing magical artifacts to try and fight Mm -hmm. back against the government. And they have a resistance towards magic as well. We do get more of them in future books. I'm inclined to save it a little towards the end so we can finish talking about this one. He is given these opportunities that another character, another novel would have been like, yes, he joins the resistance. He rises up, but Nathaniel takes the hits and doubles down. Yeah. I hate the resistance. <laughs> I want to work for the government. <laughs> I will enslave the commoners. They deserve to be subservient. Yeah. I am Nathaniel and I am 12 and I am cold and angry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to a sense, I guess I can understand because Nathaniel has been looked down upon his entire life by other magicians. And he sees himself as superior to other magicians, particularly his mentor, because he can do all these powerful things. And so I can see how he would be like, well, these magicians can do magic, but I'm better than them. These are commoners. They can't do any magic. So obviously I'm way better than them. (laughs) The way they establish the idea of basically how inherent works in this world, the fact that it's not through families because that creates blood feuds, but that it's through a complex, pseudo-complex system of like essentially plucking orphans out and assigning them to a magician. And what it breeds is a whole upper crust subculture of narcissists who feel like they don't have safety anywhere. And it makes sense in a lot of ways because you can look at Nathaniel's case as a microcosm. A lot of them, and I I think we even get hints of this from other 
tales of, of other people in their time as magicians' apprentices, they're put to work and they're put in the care of people who don't want oftentimes to have apprentices, especially because a lot of them, again, much like what Nathaniel comes to be, are obsessed with their power within the, the system at play and obsessed with rising up through, through the ranks and putting down their rivals and their enemies. And so it just naturally follows that when you look at Nathaniel, you kind of come to understand his motivations of putting down his rivals and ascending through the ranks are essentially identical to everyone else's motivations. It's just the we are seeing things through his perspective, and he's just less of a heartless monster than the other heartless monsters. <laughs> just by a tiny little bit. Just by a tiny bit. And we're inclined to to sympathize a little more with him because he is a child and because we can understand that he hasn't had the time to mature and gain a broader perspective compared to a lot of these older magicians who should know better. I'm sad my adoptive mum died. That gives me a slight more high ground. Slave, kill that man! <laughs> yeah, and it's it's just interesting to see over the course of the books, we're not seeing like an exception to the rule. We're not seeing someone who's special. We're just seeing a gifted child who is just like everyone else. We're seeing a uh, almost like a relevant person in history who was just had a, a greater capacity for execution and figuring problems out than other people, but at the same time was just as morally screwed up as everyone else. Yeah, and that's why it's so great we get this book from Bartimaeus's perspective, mm -hmm. from the genie's perspective. He doesn't want to be here. He thinks this whole thing's stupid. He's snarky and he's funny and he has these little uh, footnotes. Yeah, he puts footnotes in his chapters, which gives more insight into history. I liked the one in particular about like Nefertiti's anklet, which everyone thinks it made her more beautiful and that's how she won people over. But in reality, it's meant to make the wearer's husband obey your every word and then later <laughs> on it pays off because the current owner of the anklet nathaniel sees her at the gala at the very end like the fake magician convention it's like the duke and duchess of something oh, and I didn't the even duchess pick up on that. oh okay i was like this is a great detail <laughs> <laughs> It's literally like a comment made by Mrs. Underwood when they see, I think it's the Duke and Duchess, where Mrs. Underwood sees the Duchess and she's described as not being very attractive conventionally and whatnot. And Mrs. Underwood is like, oh, I don't know what the Duke sees in her. And then Nathaniel describes the Duke being this exhausted guy who's like trailing after her. And we as the readers know the reason is because as Bartimaeus described in a footnote, she has the anklet that makes him obey her every word. <laughs> so it's just like little details like that that his footnotes give you additional perspective on. He also makes snarky comments just about humanity in general and about other creatures that he encounters. So I really enjoy that. Yeah, it makes the book delightful, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> you have this tale about horrible people doing horrible things, but then you have this really wonderful narrator who is just as done with it as you are <laughs> and is willing to point out flaws and point it. Look at these ridiculous people and their ridiculous schemes and ah, stupid. I can't do anything about it. I'm just here for the ride. And so are you. Come on, let's see what happens next. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Bartimaeus. It adds a, a valuable levity, a pseudo nihilistic levity, because Bartimaeus has been alive for 
like tens of thousands of years in a way. He frequently talks about how Great Britain is just the next domino in a long line of dominoes that has been stood up and then knocked down. And it's interesting to go back and forth between Nathaniel's chapters where he's just a kid like, this is amazing. Wow, look at all the columns. Look at the statues. Former Prime Minister William Gladstone. What an amazing magician. (laughs) And then we go to Bartimaeus and he's like, I am so tired. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine him in a strong Brooklyn accent as well. It doesn't make any sense why he would have that, but it feels right for his character. (laughs) I really enjoy how in the first, I think it's the first chapter we get of Bartimaeus, in addition to the fact that we immediately get his perspective of like, who summoned me? A kid? Oh, this this freaking whelp. I'm going to try and scare him so he leaves his pentacle and then I can eat him and go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like flying around London like, oh, this place sucks. We get a clue into a bit of Bartimaeus' backstory when he transforms Genie, their main sort of power is transformation ultimately. They can do a few other things. They create what are called detonations. Just imagine a fireball or whatever, explosive, you know, magical blast, or they can create sort of glamours uh, about themselves. Transformation is one of their primary attributes. And Bartimaeus transforms into a young Egyptian boy, about 14 years old, named Ptolemy. We're led to believe one of the many Ptolemaic princes from ancient Egypt way back when, one of the <laughs> one of the many princes named Ptolemy. And he describes it as, I take this form because he was a boy that I loved, and this is my way of honoring him. And you're immediately set off to think, oh, he doesn't just hate everything. Mm -hmm. He is capable not only of, like, loving other creatures, but of actually having affection for a human being, which heretofore he has not had any affection for in the slightest. And so it immediately makes you wonder, what's the story here? Who was this person to Bartimaeus? And it also puts you on his side as well. In addition to setting you on a kind of moral high ground of, like, like Jim said, reading along with Bartimaeus, like, ha yeah, this is so dumb. These dumb magicians. <laughs> it allows you to be able to place a little more trust in Bartimaeus' perspective to a certain degree, to a certain degree, because you know that he is capable of a range of emotions that have no doubt probably some nuance to them compared to <laughs> Nathaniel, who, again, ball of rage. A sad mad boy. A sad mad boy. <laughs> a bad, sad mad boy. <laughs> I'm quoting a TV show here, I think. <laughs> no, no Victoria one knows. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is it because I'm too old to know? It's coming out right now. Oh, I guess I'm just uncontemporary. <laughs> <laughs> I go home and I put on my nightcap and hold up my candle and my robe <laughs> and I say, Mmm, time for bed. <laughs> I'm a magician. <laughs> I'm a ma- I, I love how they describe the magicians as like, <laughs> Bart- it's specifically from Bartimaeus' perspective, of course, but he describes them, your default inclination is to think, oh, these magicians who have to study their whole lives to like get very good at the specific task of enslaving other creatures at mortal peril to themselves. You would think they would have a certain level of panache and unique flair to each of them. But Bartimaeus describes them as being like sheep, being utterly identical to each other. They are completely subject to fads. He describes like the typical bedroom of like a magician's apprentice as being like, it's just got like the latest top 40 pop sensation, like posters on the wall, a bunch of like mainstream whatever, whatever the fads of the day are, this is what the magicians are interested in. Some of the most egregious of this 
are like adopt weird extrinsic attitudes and almost costumes where they wear their hair down in a kind of moppish way. Some of like the really gaudy ones were really insecure, will like dress exuberantly and like fashionably. And he's like, you don't have to worry about those ones. Those ones got nothing going for them. The ones you really <laughs> have to worry about are the ones that are just dressed in suits, <laughs> just like three piece suits. Yeah, like accountants. And and they're both equally lame <laughs> because the accountants are fitting into a little square box of accountant vibes and the exuberantly dressed ones are fitting into a little square box of trying to be cool. Yeah, at least Nathaniel has his own unique aesthetic of starving, desperate child. <laughs> <laughs> no clothes, no food, no money, no house. My parents are dead. Yeah. yeah. Simon Lovelace finds out who took his amulet. It takes him a little while. They capture Bartimaeus and lock him in a jail. Yeah. But then he gets out with the help of his enemies. With the help of his enemies, the, the genies summoned by Lovelace himself. And their I, names are Jabor and the other far, one. I know. I, I know. Farquaad. It is the No, no, no. Genuinely, every time I read this guy's <laughs> name, I was like, Farquaad, but it's yeah. not. It's like... Farquarl. Farquarl, yeah. I know. And anytime you read it, you're like, Farquaad, trick. But I like to call him Farquaad because that's also kind of his energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he's... Farquarl presents an interesting foil to Bartimaeus in terms of his perspective of things because they're both very old and they've both known each other for a long time. Mm -hmm. In the first chapter, we get a fun interaction between the two of them mm -hmm. because Farquhar working for Simon Lovelace naturally encounters Bartimaeus when Bartimaeus tries to steal the amulet. And there's you get a little back and forth between them of like, oh, yes, I haven't seen you in a couple hundred years. Keeping up well? Hmm. And they're just trading little jabs at each other. But later in the book, when they rescue Bartimaeus, because, of course, Simon Lovelace knows what genie took his amulet and he wants to question Bartimaeus to find out. Farquarl and Bartimaeus have a little conversation where they trade perspectives essentially on magicians and society. And Bartimaeus is over it. And Farquarl is kind of entrenched in the system and very much like, if you can't beat him, join him. And I am going to join them to the nth yeah. degree. Isn't his perspective that what Simon Lovelace is doing will actually help the spirits from the other place? That's kind of his angle. Something along the lines of, well, he's going to shake up the system. And when he does... That'll promote opportunities for certain spirits like us, but only if you're on our side. Mm -hmm. So maybe you should join our side there, huh? So it's, it's still, it is still factionalizing. And Bartimaeus says, one, I don't like your attitude. Two, I literally can't. <laughs> I am bound by magic. Yeah. If I could, I would, but I can't, so I won't. As Bartimaeus escapes, Lovelace has other spies who chase after him and track him to the Underwood's residence in which Simon Lovelace shows up, confronts Arthur Underwood because he thinks, obviously, he's the more experienced magician in the household. He's the one who took the amulet. Obviously, Mr. Underwood has no idea what's happening, and he also doesn't have the grace to manage the situation diplomatically. He just yells at Simon Lovelace and is like, you idiot, why would you accuse me? I have nothing to do with your stupid amulet. He's a big ball of rage. Yeah. I wonder where Nathaniel gets it. <laughs> this book could also be titled Things Get Worse for Nathaniel. Because that really is the whole, yeah. this moment of Lovelace confronting Underwood is the peak of a series of domino effects 
of everything going badly for Nathaniel, he fixes it barely and then it gets worse. And then yeah. he fixes it barely and then it gets worse. Yeah. And like you said, it keeps you on the edge of your seat because he's not safe ever. He... I was like, oh my God, this kid is going to die. <laughs> he gets himself into a complicated web of political intrigue by having Bartimaeus steal the amulet. And then he slips up. And Mrs. Underwood reveals his birth name, which means that Bartimaeus now has control, the same amount of control over Nathaniel that Nathaniel has over Bartimaeus. Yeah. The magicians can't reveal their birth name. Yeah. In this world, it's like very strict on as soon as you become an apprentice, you're supposed to forget your birth name altogether. And then once you reach a certain level of apprenticeship, then you are given a new magician's name. So if a spirit learns your magician's name, they do have a certain level of power over you because they know your name, but it's not as powerful as if they know your birth name. When Nathaniel was like, what, like three years old or whatever, obviously when Mrs. Underwood shows him affection, hey, like, I know you're not supposed to tell people your birth name, but I feel bad just calling you like boy or kid. (laughs) So why don't you tell me your birth name and as soon as you get your magician's name, I'll forget it. Again, he was only like three years old. Yeah, not really his fault. Like if I was him, I'd be like, I have no parents anymore. This is the one person who showed me any ounce of affection. Of um, course I'll tell you my name. Yeah, yeah. And he obviously doesn't understand the gravity of the situation either. And then that comes back to bite him when he summons Bartimaeus and Mrs. Underwood calls him Nathaniel right in front of where Bartimaeus is spying on them. So I think Bartimaeus is a little spider. Yeah. yeah. And he like cues to Nathaniel that he's in the room by like wiggling his little like torso. <laughs> he's like, I heard it. I heard your name. Oh, you're in trouble now. Yeah. But Actually, at first, Nathaniel tries to cover it up because he thinks, okay, Bartimaeus heard it because I know he's in the room, but maybe he thinks that's my magician's name, which would not be as powerful. But then Mr. Underwood in that moment decides to be like, hey, so uh, it's almost time to choose your magician's name. (laughs) And Nathaniel's like... I'm Great. Screwed. Yeah. <laughs> but he fixes it by cursing Bartimaeus to be sucked into a tin box full of rosemary? Yeah. Think, was it yeah. rosemary, yeah. which is not like super dangerous for spirits, but it makes it very uncomfortable. So you can imagine yeah. if you're trapped in this tiny box with basically things that give you a big allergy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he hucks it into the Thames. Yeah. So Bartimaeus would not be able to escape very yeah. easily. And he says, Bartimaeus, if you don't do what I say, And in the 30 days, I don't end the curse. You're going to live in that box for the rest of your life. (laughs) So Bartimaeus is still, quote, trapped. So he is now more free to do what he wants. And then he gets himself into trouble in a magic shop, and then he gets captured and thrown into genie jail. Genie jail. When Simon Lovelace shows up, this is, as Gino described, after Nathaniel has just barely scraped by. Oh, Um, and right before, he got caught by Mr. Underwood. Doing oh, yes. all this stuff. Yeah. Right? So he's in he's in he's in deep trouble with both Underwood and Lovelace. Yeah. Mr. Underwood found out that Nathaniel has been summoning creatures in his room spying without permission. Yeah, spying on him. Because Nathaniel has this scrying glass that has an imp trapped in it. The other Nathaniel likable character. Can, the yeah. imp is pretty great, yeah. <laughs> he was just giving sass to no end. Yeah. And it's uh it's so painful because when Underwood finds out that Nathaniel's been summoning spirits like way above his level and a very dangerous thing, he gets super 
super ticked off at Nathaniel and then goes downstairs and Nathaniel's like, oh no, oh, 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 I'm so screwed. Oh, I'm iced. What's he planning? What's he going to do to me? I can't just let sleeping dogs lie. I have to find out. Mm -hmm. And the imp's like, oh, I don't think you should be doing this. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it could be real dangerous if I get close. Because this imp is in this little scrying glass that he bound the imp to. And Nathaniel's like, no, you have to go find out. Go phase downstairs in your like invisible form and spy on my master. This is a moment where Nathaniel does underestimate Mr. Underwood. Yeah, and Mr. Underwood is on a call with, like, one of his maybe, like, few acquaintances or friends, and he's, like, talking it out, and he's like... He has no friends. It, yeah, probably just <laughs> probably just that one person he calls to, like, <laughs> vent to, and that person's like, oh, gosh, here we go. <laughs> and he's, like, super upset, but then at the same time, the, the person on the other end of the line is, like, trying to say, well, you know, maybe it's it's only because of your good teachings, and, you know, it's, it's good to have... such a good mentor. Yeah, you you good, taught him so well. It's a good sign. He's a gifted child, and Arthur Underwood's starting to come around like, yes, I, I suppose it, it is a good sign and it, and, and it, it does give me hope. It, it was very skilled summoning he did. I, I suppose I should be proud. And right when he comes to that like softening conclusion, his little magical like alert system picks up on the fact that he's being scried on and he quickly uh, executes a, a magical maneuver that like locks the imp in place and he essentially goes into like an astral projection form <laughs> and follows the thread back up through the house to Nathaniel's room and when he finds out that Nathaniel's been spying on him it's game over for yeah. him yeah just at that moment Simon Lovelace shows up before just... Underwood can kill him yeah <laughs> Simon Lovelace is like, ha-ha, I'll, I'll do, it, do first. it. Mr. Underwood locks Nathaniel in a room and is like, you're staying here until I finish this conversation with Lovelace and then I'll deal with you after that. But then Bartimaeus manages to free Nathaniel. The book is like slightly coincidental in which Bartimaeus happens to escape just in time for Nathaniel to summon him, just in time for Mr. Underwood to realize he's summoning creatures, just in time for Simon Lovelace to show up, etc., etc. So Bartimaeus frees Nathaniel. Nathaniel's spies on the conversation, then Simon Lovelace demands that Mr. Underwood take him up to his study so he can look for the amulet himself, even though Arthur Underwood is continuing to deny that he knows anything, because he doesn't. <laughs> At this point, Bartimaeus is telling Nathaniel, hey, man, this is the point where you run. <laughs> Wasn't this part of your plan all along? Because Nathaniel was the one who told Bartimaeus to hide the amulet in Mr. Underwood's study, because Mr. Underwood deals with magical artifacts and so all the other magical artifacts their auras would protect the amulet from discovery and also in a way it would kind of save nathaniel if he was ever discovered the blame would go on his mentor which is what happens which is what yeah which is exactly what happens but now nathaniel feels guilt for it but not necessarily towards mr underwood but towards Mrs. Underwood yeah because he's afraid that she's gonna get caught in the crossfire which is understandable yeah she does <laughs> she dies. Yeah. Yeah. Simon Lovelace blows the whole place up. It's 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 wild when Nathaniel goes to to intercede because he he says don't blame them blame me I'm the one who did it and Lovelace is kind of impressed mm -hmm. and he's like huh I really I really didn't expect that just so you know I was gonna kill everyone here anyway yeah and he tries to do just that. And Nathaniel and Bartimaeus are the only ones who escape. No thanks to Nathaniel, who keeps trying to run the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, Nathaniel keeps trying to run back to save Mrs. Underwood, who at this point is already probably far gone. Oh yeah, we didn't even see her die. Yeah. She's just toast. And Bartimaeus is like, you idiot. Why do you keep... I saved you like three times already. <laughs> 
Then they're on the streets. Yeah, there's a, a slowdown a bit in the plot as they as they try and figure out what to do. And it's during this sequence that Nathaniel has more of a run-in with the resistance, mm-hmm. specifically the element of the resistance that's made up of, of plucky street orphans who sell the <laughs> newspaper. And they're all anti-magic mystery people yeah. who beat Nathaniel up and leave him for dead. They steal his scrying glass. Threaten to cut his throat. These are nasty children. <laughs> yeah, they're following a mysterious person a little older than Nathaniel but another street orphan named Kitty. It's implied that she's the one that Bartimaeus runs into at the very beginning of the book, right? Yeah, when Bartimaeus is stealing the amulet, these kids are able to find him and see through his disguise, and he tries to hurt him a little bit, give him a flash of some of some toasty magic, and it doesn't affect him. And he only is able to escape through some uh, trickery, which is how Bartimaeus escapes most things. Yeah. <laughs> that aspect of the world really does interest me. I would hope that they... I mean, I'm sure I'm sure they do explore that more in the sequel books. Yeah, I want to learn more about them. And there's another character that has that in this book that you see. Oh yeah, the bounty hunter. Yeah, there's this mercenary. Oh, right. He doesn't hunt any bounties. He's a mercenary, <laughs> but he has bounty hunter vibes. Ever yeah, since yeah. Star Wars and Boba Fett, anything that is vaguely like gun for hire is just bounty hunter. Because <laughs> <laughs> Boba Fett's too cool. He defines the whole vague profession. There's like a mercenary working for Lovelace. The mercenary first recovered the amulet from wherever it was residing. He uh, probably originally. murdered someone for it. Killed a man. Yeah, it was. It was to take his jewelry with the government or something. <laughs> Kill a man, take his jewelry. <laughs> Ultimately, when Nathaniel and Bartimaeus go to stop Lovelace's plan, which is occurring at this lovely estate held by this commoner socialite Amanda, who's sort of romantically entwined with Lovelace, but she's sort of using him and he's using her. Mm-hmm. Like Um, all magicians. The plan is simple. Get the entire government to the one room. Blow up the room. (laughs) I am wearing the amulet, so I'm fine. Yes, 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 yes. Good, 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 good. Yes. Simon Lovelace. Um, 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 um. (laughs) Uh, Nathaniel kills a man. (laughs) Okay, we jumped a lot of steps. Yeah, well, I mean... Let's cut to the chase. Nathaniel and Bartimaeus trek through the countryside and they hijack a a van carrying like foods. They give Um, several children concussions. Yes, they do. Yeah, Nathaniel beats up a few kids to steal their clothes. Bartimaeus also beats up a few kids. (laughs) Just to beat up kids. (laughs) Yeah, it's very heist movie. They literally have to sneak in by putting on human disguises and getting through, dressing up as servants. Farquarl is the, sh- the chef. Yeah. Which Farquarl seems to like because at the in the beginning of the book, he's posing as a, sh- as a chef yeah. in Simon Lovelace's place as a cook. Mm-hmm. And a at line... the end, he's posing as a cook again and Bartimaeus <laughs> like sees him and walks back out. Yeah. And he's like, I can't go in there. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a line when Farquarl is chasing Bartimaeus and they both end up in an alleyway just kind of to rest. And Bartimaeus says that they both transform into their desired transformations, which for Farquarl is the cook, and Bartimaeus is this Egyptian boy. That's so funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, just transforming him into just why I imagine, like, Chef Boy RD, just like, <laughs> I'll kill you, boy, and this little tiny, like, Egyptian child, it's like, nah, not if I kill you first. <laughs> Everyone walking by is like, what's going on? What are they No, doing? there actually is a girl who stumbles in on them, because she's, like, playing it, she's, like, a common girl who is playing tennis and her tennis ball happens to land in the alleyway so she like walks up and she's like what's happening here <laughs> Farquhar almost kills her yeah he does uh, and, and then, then Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus lights him on fire yeah. so they go into this event they manage to sneak in Nathaniel follows Simon Lovelace but it turns out Simon Lovelace already knows that he's there 
He's lost the element of surprise. And then Simon Lovelace leaves him with his mentor? Yeah. Yeah, to try to recruit Nathaniel to the New World Order. Yeah. Because Nathaniel is powerful and they can use allies like mm-hmm. this child. <laughs> and Nathaniel says, no, old man. And then rams him against the door. Not on purpose, but enough to break his neck. Yeah. yeah. It's a very like, amidst all this magical stuff happening, it's a very like, oh, the old ma- the, the frail old man just fell over. <laughs> and like, that was it. Yeah. Nathaniel basically just throws firecrackers at his head until he loses his step. I like it. (laughs) It's like we've spent a whole book talking about enslaved genies and stuff and magic and like mortal consequences. Nathaniel's been complicit, but it's still been like a little distant from him, a little removed. It's all come at the hands of genie. This time, it's literally just Nathaniel threw an object at an old man's head and the old man fell over and died. (laughs) (laughs) Nathaniel finds a pentacle, is able to summon Bartimaeus back because Bartimaeus had been in his own wild adventure with the mercenary. Hucking, hucking rocks at a guy. Oh, yeah. Bar- <laughs> I think Bartimaeus is about to, like, kill the mercenary because Bartimaeus has been, like, hurling magic at this mercenary, and the mercenary is like, oh, that was a little rough. And Bartimaeus is like, what the heck? Yeah. And he's about to, like, take a rock and, like, crush the mercenary, and Nathaniel summons him back, and he's like, no! <laughs> <laughs> and so they manage to just barely slip into the bomb room, which it's not a bomb, but... That's basically what it is. It's It's, the room where they've gathered all the magicians with the intention of killing them. It's an impressive little trick because there's a a giant extravagant, like, rug, essentially. Imagine, like, a giant, you know, ancient Near East or what what would it have been? It's a Persian rug. Persian rug. I think it's, they mentioned in the book, it was specifically made in Persia for the tourist industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very gaudy... Not cheaply made, but definitely not made with love. Yeah. Aren't there also depictions of various Members high-ranking of oh, yeah. magicians, too? Yeah, the prime minister and, like, his, like, cabinet and everything are, like, woven into, like, this, the medieval scene in the rug, like, riding horses on, like, yeah. a hunt. Oh, and it's just, like, so pretentious. <laughs> it's like you go to a wedding and the giant cake has your face, everyone's face, just drawn on the cake. <laughs> and the bride and groom are like, everyone eat your face or something. <laughs> and you're like... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And your face is a little lumpy, and you're like, I guess it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and and Lovelace pulls the old look over there trick. <laughs> it's really, it's really funny. <laughs> he, he's standing at a podium. The rug is beneath like a glass floor, like a crystal glass floor, and it's like, ooh, super fancy. And he points up as like, look at this chandelier that we imported from such and such. And when he does that, he triggers the rug to slide away, and no one notices it because it's it's not actually beneath him. It's beneath beneath the glass that's beneath them. And it slides away, revealing a giant pentacle. And and the prime minister is the only one with, like, uh, a slave, essentially, summoned. It's an Afrit, uh, second only to a Merid. And the Afrit notices first what's happening as Lovelace pulls out this summoning horn and, you know, hor- honks it, essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just oh my like gosh. that. <laughs> and, and this summoning horn... horn. <laughs> <laughs> and this clown horn uh, summons the this... biggest clown you've ever yeah. seen. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's this like extremely powerful, bigger than like any a, a genie or a merit or anything. Summons this ancient, powerful being. I think it's called Ramuthra or something. Also, Nathaniel can't even see it. Yeah, it's because like... it like traverses across multiple planes. There's this thing in the book. There's seven planes, and different creatures can appear as different things on different planes. So, for example when Bartimaeus transforms into, say, a raven. He's, he looks like a raven on four of seven planes. 
But if someone can look past the fourth plane, they will see him for who he truly is. But Nathaniel, because he he doesn't have the correct lenses. He doesn't have contact lenses. Yeah, the magicians will make uh, contact lenses that allow them to see, like, a few planes in. Nathaniel got his, but I think his just aren't high level enough yet. Yeah. So he can't actually see this giant creature. So it's kind of funny whenever it cuts to his chapters, he's like... And then this the air person was weird. Th- this person gets thrown into the air and disappears. <laughs> and Nathaniel's like, I don't know what happened. He got eaten. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> they win the day by repeatedly tackling Simon and punching him <laughs> and grabbing at his neck until they get the amulet. Well, and then Bartimaeus transforms into Amanda, who is oh, Simon's yes. lover or whatever. Yeah. A genius play by Bartimaeus. Yeah, yeah. And he <laughs> P-O-G. puts... P-O-T-G. Play of the game. <laughs> <laughs> and he puts on this whole act of like, Simon, why would you do this to me? I thought we were doing this together, blah, blah, blah. And Simon's like, Amanda, get away. I loved that moment. Yeah. Because this whole time, Nathaniel's like the only vaguely human magician, the only person with a trace of empathy. And Lovelace has been ruthless as this whole time. And right at the end, Lovelace has, has talked all this game to Nathaniel, even at the end where he's like, oh, you almost had it. If you had just, you know, like let Underwood take the fall, done what every magician is supposed to do and throw everyone else under the bus for power, you might have gotten away with it. But you didn't. And then Amanda, as we are led to believe, claws up to Simon, you know, his lover, like, Simon, I thought, what? how could you do this? And Simon should, like, if he's true to his word, attack her or shove her off, but he's petrified. And he's like, Amanda, don't don't come any closer. Please, Amanda, I'm warning you, don't come any closer. And you can see this guy, this joker is weak. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, he can't hold up what he actually believes. When it comes down to it, all these magicians have something. Yeah. They have something that still has a nugget of humanity in them, and they betray it time and time again. Attachment leads to fear. <laughs> fear leads to anger. Anger leads to... Oh! Big monster! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and then a small boy punches you and takes your jewelry. Yeah, it opens up just enough opportunity for Nathaniel to run up and grab the amulet and put it on himself. Well, I got your necklace. And then uh, Ramuthra. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's the fun reveal. Is is Lovelace is like, uh, uh, rules lawyer time. Uh, Nathaniel doesn't actually have the amulet because I didn't give it to him. So you you can't attack me still, even though I'm not protected, Ramuthra. <laughs> attack the woman instead. Attack Amanda. And the and Ramuthra goes, I see no woman, only a grinning genie. And then that's when Bartimaeus reveals himself yeah. and turns into like a monkey and jumps away. <laughs> the reveal is so good. Uh, I, it got me. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, I was too. like, no way, because I genuinely thought it was Amanda. Yeah. I guess she's kind of helping Nathaniel. That's cool. <laughs> little did we know, Amanda's been dead for a little bit. Yeah. yeah. It's really fun, all the descriptions you get of, like, the effect that Ramuthra has just on the world mm-hmm. around it. Yeah. Because it's described as essentially, like, just a disturbance in the air, kind of multicolored. Like, it's it's it can't even take on a form like a physical form like the other beings can. It's just so new to the physical world. And like it breaks physics and reality. And you have these magicians like turning into water and like (laughs) flashing a bunch of different colors. Like their arms become spaghetti and their noses get real big and droopy. And they're just like, (laughs) Some people turn from being an adult to a child to like an animal. (laughs) And the rest of them, it's described also in a very amusing way. All these big, high and mighty, rich, famous magicians in their fancy clothing all basically scrabbling 
against one another in a big pile in the corner of the room trying to get away from <laughs> Ramuthra. And obviously they can't, but they're trying to be the last one to be eaten. They're all just cowering in this big pile. It's beautiful. <laughs> meanwhile, Nathaniel, the only one who is able to do anything. Well, clearly the magicians can do something, but they're too scared to do anything. Yeah. Nathaniel, the only one still in his right mind, recalls all the way back to the beginning of the book where he memorized a certain dispelling charm or something like that. Yeah, something along the lines of just sending away any kind of entity or something. The go away spell. And he recites it. And it goes away! <laughs> and then he does the right thing and falls back in line with the government. Yeah, he literally walks up to the prime minister and hands him the amulet. Because the amulet was initially stolen from the government by Simon Lovelace. And Nathaniel gives it back. And it's really funny told through the eyes of Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus is like, ah, oh, this kid really has... He's hamming it up. Yeah, he has the knack for theatrical performance because Nathaniel, he describes Nathaniel like walking alone in the room <laughs> as all these other magicians are slowly coming back to themselves being like, what? What happened? And Nathaniel's, it's very cinematic. Yeah, limping um, over, tattered yeah. in the, this echoing chamber, the yeah. silence. And it's just this small boy in the middle and he walks up and you think that he's going to attack the prime minister or do something to the prime minister and he just drops the amulet into his hand. That would have been wild. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, Bartimaeus up. says that the prime minister kind of like trembles a little bit because yeah. like they just watched this kid destroy a giant beast <laughs> and send him back. A primordial being from the netherworld. Yeah. And then Where he takes out the... a little butter knife and stabs the PM in the throat. <laughs> he takes out a firecracker. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It worked on one old man. <laughs> a slightly full circle moment, I guess, is at the very end, Nathaniel, after he has a series of hoity-toity conversations with people in the government being like, oh, yes, me, Nathaniel, I'm so cool. <laughs> they assign him a new mentor, someone who actually sees his potential and will train him. And it's this magician who actually imprisoned Bartimaeus. Yeah. She was the one who was torturing Bartimaeus in the Tower of London where he was imprisoned. Jessica Whitwell. Yes, that was her name. But Nathaniel doesn't know that. But Nathaniel doesn't know. So Nathaniel is telling Bartimaeus, like, oh, I'm so excited for my new mentor. She's so awesome. I'm so excited <laughs> to learn from her. And Bartimaeus is just like... Sure, kid. Okay. <laughs> Can I go home now? Yeah. yeah. But I think it's so telling just of this whole system that Nathaniel is raised in and that Bartimaeus is the only perspective we get in this series of how things really are. Mm -hmm. There is a glimmer of hope at the end um, where Bartimaeus betrays at least that capacity for caring about a human remotely. I think he does have a soft spot for Nathaniel. Yeah. He, as much as he would hate to admit it. Yeah, definitely. Nathaniel's about to d uh, send him back to the other place and he's like, one more second. Nathaniel's like, are, do you want to go back or not? <laughs> and he's like, I just want to tell you, you're stuck up little brat, but you have a chance. Yeah. You have just a trace of a heart inside you. Do not let these other magicians tear that away from you mm -hmm. and then Nathaniel's like okay and sends him away I'm off to magic school one day I'll be big boy government man <laughs> and I'll tell all the commoners to eat my poop because I'm a magician <laughs> and that's kind of the direction that future books go oh no <laughs> Nathaniel under the tutelage of Jessica Whitwell a combination of his competency and nepotism gets a place at a very young age within the government and starts ferreting out 
attempting to ferret out elements of the resistance and ferreting out other plots from minor members of the government attempting to overthrow the government so they can be major members of the government. His efforts are primarily in line with like the current regime and trying mm-hmm. to keep it intact, but he still has traces of that humanity within him. And there are times where he will get pressured by other members of the government to do something and he will choose the opposite thing and he'll justify it with some self-serving end but there's always a little bit of a hint that he has a a certain moral compass still within him Mm -hmm. there are plenty of times where he it seems like is one of the only ones who kind of is seeing things clearly and not letting the bureaucracy and an entirely selfish paranoid motive to prevent him from figuring out machinations of other individuals before it's too late But much like this book, what little he does to make a situation better does not stop it from becoming ultimately worse. By the third book, he's he's in a real rough spot. He's essentially like lost the trust and companionship of like everyone. It's a major crux as to the end of the series of his ability to unwrite that and go back and confront himself for what he has become. These books really do not shy away from high stakes. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's really something. And it's in future books that, of course, we get more of the resistance, which in this book is just a half-hearted terrorist attack in the middle of the book on a bunch of nobles. And then, whatchamacallit, near the end, the few people who beat up Nathaniel. In the two subsequent books, we get more of Kitty and the other members of the resistance and their efforts to try and destabilize ma- the magical authority. And we get an interesting perspective from Bartimaeus in this regard because most commoners see the spirits as demons because, of course, the spirits are levied against them to put them down. And Kitty has this perspective as well. She and a friend of hers, when they inadvertently made a magician crash his car, this magician, like, set his uh, genie on them. Kitty's friend was severely maimed. She was not because she had magical resistance. And she and her family, like, put a case against this magician. Actually, I'm not even sure if she had a family at that point. But she put a case against this magician. And, of course, the courts were corrupt and favored the magician. And that's part of what led her down this path to joining the resistance. But by the time the second book rolls around, she's already been in it for a while. And the person running the resistance is old and bitter and looking at their life and going, nothing's changed. And in a certain regard has gone down a similar path of anger and bitterness at their place to a lot of other magicians. And Kitty's arc has a lot to do with getting a wider perspective on the struggle of peoples, not only her people, but people through time against the system. And she develops a very interesting relationship with Bartimaeus and they influence each other. Her place in this book, it's inextricable from the narrative that's told. Because it's easy to, especially after this first book where we don't get much of her, think, oh, you have Bartimaeus on one side, Nathaniel on the other. And together they they represent the two sides that are really all that you need to tell the story of this society and what happens over the course of these three books to change the path of history, to change the path of the future. But Kitty is instrumental in being a bridge in a way that Nathaniel could never really be. Because in a lot of ways, Kitty is the person who is able to interact with Bartimaeus on a similar playing field. She and Bartimaeus have both been put down by the system, and there is a chance that Bartimaeus can maybe be inspired by her. But there's stuff that she has to do first in order to bridge that divide. And a lot of that comes into play in the third book, Ptolemy's Gate. And just sort of finding a way to think of a future in which humans and spirits are existing innately on a more level playing field. 
These books are great. They, I've, I've actually already checked out the second one, and I'm inclined to read the the whole series all over again because it's, yeah, it's just a, a wonderful read. Amazing world building, solid characters, and a very complex system for children to explore. Yeah. I was gonna ask, what is the age group this is aimed for? You know. I don't know. I'm sure the internet (laughs) has answers for us. It is an example of one of those books that can be read by a youthful reader, and a youthful reader can still pick up on what it's putting down. I picked up on some of it when I was younger. But even now, as an older reader, you can read this, and it's an excellent hypothetical case study for just, like, you know, systems of oppression, and uh, it has its own sort of cycle of history that ties into the way that, like, you may have heard of what's called, like, the cycle of empire. This idea of hard times create, pardon the gendered phrasing, it's how the saying goes, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. <laughs> it's a very ancient idea. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Ugh, ugh, ugh. I think it's... I mean, it's not like I'm some historian or whatever or anthropologist. I think it's I think it's a, a little simplistic. I don't know how much veracity you can assign to it. Its view of like good times and hard times is insular to like a very ancient idea of what mm-hmm. like a system is, which is very material and, and imperial. Yeah. And real life empires don't just end. Ah, today the empire ended. Yeah. Rats. Everything's on fire. Ah, uh, the men were too weak. Better better move elsewhere and start new empire. No, they, they like change. They don't just vanish. Yeah. The people are still there. They're still living there. They're still doing stuff. Yeah. And if your whole system is based on expansion and consumption, eventually something's not going to go right. Yeah. People change or they leave or they vanish into puffs of smoke. Yeah. Like Foghwarl at the end of The Amulet of Samarkand, who is not present for, like, the main finale. He's just in the kitchen. And then when Simon Lovelace is eaten by Ramuthra, like, all the kitchen attendants just watch as suddenly this chef who's been in their midst just goes, and, like, turns into a spittle of flame and vanishes into thin air. And all the all the cooks are like, oh, guess he's gone. Yeah, like, hide if, now. Imagine if your boss just turned into a pillar of flame and disappeared. Casey Whelan, no! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. I looked it up. This book series is for 10 to 14 years old children. So Nathaniel's age. Nathaniel's age. Yeah. That tracks. I think this is is another example of us as grown-up adults people forgetting... Kids are smarter than we remember them to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if you're not picking up everything. I mean, for example, this is a bit of a confession. When I first read these books, because of the way that society works, and it seems like certain elements of technology have not like progressed as much as they have in our version of the world because everyone relies on magic to do a lot of things. To my mind, I was like, oh, this is like turn of the century, like early 1900s. Mm. When I first read it as a kid, that was my conception of it, which already I'm impressed that I could gather that much in terms of placing (laughs) it within a time period in history. And I only learned when I came back to it very recently that it was actually just an alternate version of the modern day. And I think it's almost telling that this alternate universe looks more like the sort of like late 1800s, early 1900s with all of these empires and sweeping foreign influence and trying to take as much as they can from the world around them than it looks like our own version of the modern day, which is different than... A different sort of empire. Yes. Taking a different sort of thing from from a different sort of people. (laughs) 
But yeah, these books were a lot of fun. Thanks for bringing them back. Yeah. Thank you for for reading them. I when I was reading these uh, myself, I was like, I'd love to see a movie of these. But then I'm like, so much of this is made of footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> so much of this is just made of like, let me tell you everything in a funny voice. Hey, it's me, Bartimaeus. Yeah. Actually, I did find that there's a graphic novel of this first book. That's right. Um, I didn't get a chance to read through all of it, but I did kind of look through. My first impression is that they made Nathaniel look too old. He looks like a 14 or like more like a 16 year old in this, in which case I find it a little bit more believable that he could do all these crazy things. Nathaniel's chapters are told in first person, which is actually kind of weird. That is interesting. Yeah. It kind of takes me out of it a little bit weirdly. Are they trying to humanize him, I suppose? I think so, and they're trying to, I guess it would be maybe more confusing to say, like, with comic book narration squares, you know, to have it still be in third person might be maybe more confusing. I don't know. Maybe. It does interest me to see a graphic novel drawn and written from the perspective of an outside observer, so we don't get as many first person or close-up shots of the characters. Instead, we get more POV shots. I suppose. But I guess that's hard to do conceptually. There's definitely a lot of fun illustrations because it's a very visual series. I will definitely try and read more of the books. And I know I say this literally (laughs) every time. Well, it's a tall order. But eventually, when I get through my huge stack of books at home, I will read more Bartimaeus. (laughs) Not if we don't keep giving you big Nostalgia Club books to read first. (laughs) What's our next giant encyclopedic tome? It's the encyclopedic tome. Oh! (laughs) Remember remember the encyclopedia that your classroom had at the front of the room? We're reading that one. (laughs) I love the entry on napkins. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That would be the worst Nostalgia Club episode ever. My favorite part of the encyclopedia was when... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Nostalgia Club. And and thank the both of you for reading this long book. It was delightful, Michael. Like, truly. It was so much fun. Well, I hope it came across in this episode. Listener, did it come across? Leave a comment. Mail in to our our, our email address. Yell across the street, wherever you are. We'll hear it. Did you like this episode? Summon a small imp into horrible, immoral, and unethical servitude and tell it to tell us how much you liked this book about how bad of a person you are for summoning that imp. What are you doing? What? Don't. Stop that. You should have learned by the end of this episode not to do it. But do it anyway and tell us we're doing a good job. Took a dark turn. Whoa. Until next time. Don't do whatever Michael just said. (laughs) I'm going to take a slightly different tack and say, until next time, do exactly what I say. (laughs) Until next time, overthrow your government. Do it. And then take its place and become a worse, more cruel master than the previous prime minister. That weak fool. I will build a monument to myself. It will take thousands of lives. Be a big box. Write my name on it. That's your monument? That'll stand the test of time. <laughs> you, you want your monument to be a big box with your name on it? The Egyptians took the triangle. I want the square. Ah, yes. Mm, that's the big brain maneuver, I there suppose. There we are. The square is the strongest shape. <laughs> Everyone knows that. This is a really <laughs> weird <laughs> end of episode. I don't know how much you're even going to keep of this. Some of it. Just, get, just, yeah. just cut straight to this. Thank you for listening to Nostalgia Club. Uh, I don't know. Go home. <laughs> 
go home. <laughs> Get out of here, Get, kid. It's too. It's late. It's laid out. What are you doing? Spying on a magician far more powerful than you. You rogue. You rapscallion all full of rage. Get out of here. Michael, I like how you were like, use this outro instead. It's much shorter. And then you proceeded to make it longer. I, I'm panicking. <laughs> Somebody help me. It's okay. I'm going to pause the recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Nostalgia Club. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Twitter at underscore Nostalgia Club and on Instagram at Nostalgia Club Podcast. Leave a comment, give us a rating, and subscribe. You can also send us an email with your suggestions for what we should review next at nostalgiaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Hello? Hi, Casey. Wow, you picked up after one ring. That's pretty good. Who's this? This is Victoria. Victoria. <laughs> just, just, this is just a random Victoria who's going to tell you about the Bartimaeus sequence. I knew that's what this was about. <laughs> Why else would I call you, Casey? That's silly. It's not like I work for you or anything. I... You never know. <laughs> we're, we're totally social all the time, right? I'm kidding. I'm mostly kidding. Okay, but do you want to hear about the Bartimaeus sequence? Um, is that a code? No, it's a. It's just a question. What is happening? I mean, I guess I, if it's you know you only you only have a minute maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you all about it. So the Bartimaeus uh, sequence. The first book is called The Amulet of Samarkand. It's about a young 12-year-old boy named Nathaniel who is the apprentice of a magician, and he is just a tiny ball of rage. And because this other magician named Simon Lovelace uh, embarrassed him in front of all his peers, he decides that he's going to summon a great spirit, a djinn, and, uh, named Bartimaeus, and steal this amulet from Simon and embarrass him back. And so Nathaniel succeeds barely, uh, but Simon Lovelace kind of catches on and goes after Nathaniel to try and get it back. Nathaniel realizes he's actually stumbled upon a great plot to overthrow the government, which is in an alternate universe of London where uh, magicians (laughs) rule everything. (laughs) Um, And then um, Simon Lovelace catches Nathaniel. He kills his mentor and his whole family. He burns down his house and then Nathaniel uh, sneaks into this great uh, magician's convention and kills Simon Lovelace. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all the plot details you get because it's a big book and I only had a minute to tell you about it. Wow. It's kind of similar to uh, the Ministry of Magic and the overthrow of that. Some, Some parallels there. A little bit. It's more complicated because um, Nathaniel's whole whole motivation is not to help people who are being oppressed by the government. He just wants to become part of the government himself. So he employs a djinn, which is a a genie? Yeah, yeah. So why couldn't he just wish for the things he wants? It's not how it works. It's not that kind of genie. Ah. Yeah, it's very complicated. You have to, like... Make sure you, like, summon them within a pentacle and make sure the terms are set so that they will obey your every will. All that's fun stuff. What do you think about this series? Um, I think it's okay. I mean, I might, on a scale of 1 to 10, my interest might be, like, a G. Interesting. <laughs> for genie? What? A G for genie? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, Casey. Bye. What a strange call. <laughs> what? So what is in the air? This episode is so <laughs> weird. <sighs>